My name is Dan, honored to serve as pastor here and also get the um, privilege of bringing you the main message every Sunday comes from the Bible, which we believe is God revealing Himself to us. We learn who He is, what He's done, what He's created us to be and do through the Scripture. And so our messages aren't um, coming out of the headlines in the newspaper, thank God. They're not coming out of my imagination. They are lifted up and um, digging down in and through the Bible. So uh, we would love to think that you along the way are learning and growing and who God is based on, on that and your own um, learning during the week in between Sundays. If you are raising kids or if you live in a family or if you um, have parents, this series is for you. I hope I just covered everybody. This series is for you. This series is not just a parenting series, but it is a series that um, is factoring in the vision that most people have of what their family is going to be like. And in large part, uh, in America, um, we believe that uh, people envision having families or homes that are happy and successful. Uh, I would say if, if I were to boil down to the lowest level, what is the most basic dream everybody in a family has? They, they are hoping that they have happiness in their home and that they have kids who are successful and that they themselves are living a happy, healthy life. And um, parents would say, my vision is for my kids to be successful and success in uh, my child's life would be that they are free. Kids would think probably in our culture that they grow up and their greatest aspiration is to be completely free to express and be whoever they are, whoever they want to be, and do whatever they want to do. And that that would be the highest um, expression of, of um, living the, the vision, living the dream here in our country that, in fact, someone would be um, free from restrictions with no limits, no limit to their uh, autonomy, individualism, and self-actualization, that that's the highest vision. And um, here in our church family, we have a vision that when the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is and what He's done, when that kind of takes root in your heart, it transforms your heart, and then it transforms your home, also transforms your neighborhood, or I should say, or I could say the marketplace and workplace and your neighbor's and so on. The Christian vision of what a home could be like could also probably be summarized. For the most part, uh, I believe Christians have a vision that their kids and their family would be kind to people, would be neighborly, would be good citizens, successful careers. In fact, they would be decent Christians, attend church on Sundays. And um, for some, they're looking to just, they, they basically are only hoping that they would eventually get on in their life to just being more than a family who is trying to survive. Just want to succeed in some way. I'd take anything. Um, and when you are joined to Jesus by faith, things change. Your heart changes, your home changes, there's a transformation that begins that God starts to um, cause in your heart. And when you believe the gospel, all aspects begin to transform. All aspects. There isn't a part of our lives that the gospel doesn't change. It doesn't change in a hurry. God's timeline is seasons. Uh, we here in north central New York are very familiar with the winter season. The winter season does not pass as quick as we want it, but eventually we all hope and trust that it does pass. And eventually the spring comes, and everything that was dead eventually turns to life. And then the summer comes, and then we start to already start to feel this tension and eeriness that winter's right around the corner. But the changes that occur in the year are similar to the transformation changes that occur in our lives. They're seasonal. They happen over long periods of time. Fruit doesn't just appear on a tree after the seed hits the ground. It's a season of growth, and that's the way God transforms us. The gospel transforms the relationships in my home. The gospel has the power of God, not just to save us, but to sanctify and transform the, the, the relationships in my home. 
And that is an aspect of the good news. And one of the ways that the gospel does this is it brings new power for my family. New power for my family. Not old power, not willpower, not physical power, not human power, but a brand new power that comes along uh, here through the gospel. And let me show you one aspect of that new power that we're going to talk about today. Are you ready? I don't know if you are. Are you ready for this? Now Now we're cooking. Now we're cooking. Here we go. Here's the big idea, that the gospel transforms our home. What does it do? It roots out legalism. It roots out legalism. If you don't know exactly what the word legalism is, no worries. We're going to get to that. But in my family, in my home, I can grow to reflect and to radiate the joy of living free from legalism. Or um, living free from the death that the rules and the laws bring to my life and my home. Free from death, free from law. Um, one of the most endearing stories that you will come across, I think, my opinion, I should put it this way, one of my favorite stories in the Scripture, worth reading, Luke chapter 15. Jesus is telling uh, anyone who will listen, He's saying, lost things matter to the Father. Lost things matter to the Father. And He talks about how the lost coin, um, the Father will do anything to find that lost coin. Then He describes a lost sheep, a sheep that leaves the, the flock, and the shepherd goes and pursues the sheep, and he says, lost sheep are important. And then eventually, some of you know this, what, what does he get to? The lost son. And he gets to the lost son, and he tells this story about the lost son. And it's, and it's basically, um, I mean, you could kind of describe it as the prodigal son story. Pastor author Timothy Keller wrote a book, and he changed the name uh, kind of slightly to say um, he called it the prodigal God story. Interesting, fascinating story. Um, And the question here in the story is this. Is there a legalist in the family? Is there a legalist in the family? The story that Jesus tells of this, two sons and their father, two brothers and their father, and the the story that Jesus tells is going to raise the question, is there a legalist in the family? Now, how do we know that's one of the questions in the story? Because Jesus is telling the story with an earshot of the Pharisees who are legalists. And he wants them to hear this. And he's going to explain this story starting with this young son who approaches his father and he says, I am due an inheritance and I don't want to wait for it. I want it right now. And um, if you're like me, some of you who are maybe fathers or parents, you immediately start thinking, I already know I'm not going to give it to you. I already know that I'm not going to give it to you. The father works out for some, somehow the father coordinates and works out uh, a way in which he divides up his estate before his sons die, and the father, the father agrees to divide up his wealth. So what happens? A few days later, uh, the son packs up all of his stuff, and he moves out of the house, and he goes to a distant land. And the first thing he does is waste everything that he had inherited on wild living. First thing he does. In fact, in the story, there's no delay between the time he gets to the distant land and the time that he wastes it all. There's no delay. First thing he does, squander it all. When the money runs out, a great famine hits the land, and it gets so bad that the son ends up in a pigsty, and he's looking at what the pigs eat, and he's kind of like, I would eat that right now. I'm so hungry. And eventually, after suffering in the pigsty long enough, he says something, or it's, Jesus mentioned something about the son that's fascinating. He said he comes to his senses. And when he comes to his senses, he starts to think about this. He starts to say, even the servants, the slaves in my father's home ate better than I'm eating now. And he's drawn out of the, the pig pen, and he's drawn back home to the father's house, and he's drawn back home in order to ask his father, what if I came home and I lived like a servant in your home and I just ate whatever you're feeding the servants? What if, what if we did that? So that's his plan in his mind. That's what he's going to do. 
He's going to go home and say, I've sinned against you, I've sinned against God, and um, I hope that you would take me on as a hired servant. So he returns home to his father, and while he was still a long way, this is such an amazing picture, while he's still a long way, his father spots him. And uh, I am not very spiritual, so I would be I would be starting to cook up in my mind, how am I going to make this boy pay for this? That's what would be cooking in my mind. But Jesus is not telling the story of me, and He's not telling the story of you, and He's not telling the story of your parents. He's telling the story of the Father. He's telling the story of the Father in heaven. While His rebellious son, who had squandered his wealth, and by the way, in squandering his wealth, he had already taken with him the family name, and he brought shame to the family's name. And in that culture, the most valuable thing that you own, you know what it is? It's your family name. It is honor. That's the most valuable thing you, name, you, you own. And his youngest son, living wild, squanders the, his wealth, but more importantly, he squanders honor. And the father sees his son coming from a long way off. And, the, and, and Jesus says, and his father was filled with compassion. Started to compassion starts to bubble up inside of him and love. And he didn't wait. He couldn't wait for his son to get home. He goes on the run to meet his son. To tell him you're grounded for the rest of your life. Forever. He runs out to meet his son and then he embraces him. And then he kisses him. Affection favor, warmth, grace. And his son said to him, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said, never mind. Servants, bring everything we have. We're going to have a celebration here. And I want you to bring out the robe and bring out the ring that helps him to remember that he belongs in this household Get a fatted calf because we're going to eat and we're going to celebrate and we're going to party. And we're going to celebrate that this son of mine was dead and now he's returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. And we get to see the heart of the father for his household. We get to see a father who is um, celebrating the return of his lost and dead son. So the party begins. Question for you, is everybody celebrating? Thank you for answering that rhetorical question. No. Everybody's not celebrating. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a stretch here. If you look at the commentaries in your study Bibles on this passage, you may not come across this. I'm not sure it's on the surface. But I think that that's a part of what Jesus is trying to teach is that the Pharisees who are listening to the story are now going to be featured in the story. How are they going to be featured in the story? They're going to be featured in the story because Jesus is going to uh, now start to tell you about the elder brother who was not partying, who was not happy, who was not thrilled at all about what was going, in going on. In fact, the um, prodigal son's older brother didn't even come in to celebrate. He was still outside. The older brother was angry, and he wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, All these years I have slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to do. Tim Keller uh, describes this as, the son said, I have slavishly obeyed you. Slavishly obeyed you. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fatted calf. I want you to notice that the elder son was obeying, um, but it seems he's obeying for the father's approval, not from the father's approval. I hope that um, you can notice here that he believed his slavish obedience should be rewarded with the father's attention and the father's possessions. 
and the father's acceptance. He believed his brother's selfish rebellion should be punished with rejection. And this is an important part of the story because it is about the prodigal son, but it's also about the reaction of the elder brother who said, I have slavishly obeyed. What do I get? Nothing. Never once have you given me anything. And all I've done is obey and do the right thing. Obey and do the right thing. Now, even worse, we see that the son desired the father's things, not the father himself. Even worse. He desired the Father's things, not the Father Himself. Now, I also wonder here, and, and if we can kind of extrapolate a little bit, imagine what kind of parent this elder brother is. Now, I imagine that the kind of parent he is is obvious, right? He might say something like this to his kids, after all I've done for you, and you're acting like that, after all I've sacrificed for you, after all I've given you, after all I have... Um, given up for you, and you, this is how you repay me, this is how you're behaving, this is how you're acting in a similar way to this. I mean, one of my favorite things to do is to look at characters like this and say, trash. I'm so much better than him. That's one of my favorite things. I'm so much better than him. He's a turd. I ain't. I'm not. But, but it's not wise to read the Scripture that way, right? It's not wise to read the Scripture that way. The Scripture isn't about us, but it's for us. So we wonder at times, is there any way in this portrayal of the elder brother that I can actually see myself? In a large part, most of us are natural-born legalists. Um, to help you better grasp, if you, um, maybe you might find it helpful to better understand what a legalist is, here's one way to think of it. This is not the way, but it's one way to think of it. It's someone who tries to justify oneself by doing the right thing. Not just do the right thing, but someone whose motive is, I'm going to justify myself. Uh, often, obviously, the legalist here is someone who is trying to justify themselves with God by doing the right thing. Also, a legalist would earn love, acceptance, and approval by good or pleasing performance. So what they would say is they would, they would, they're under the belief that if I obey, follow the rules, and submit to the law, then the Father's going to be happy with me. God is going to accept me. He's going to approve me. He's going to love me. He's going to reward me. Why? Because of my obedience. It's not the, the obedience that's wrong, but it's what's driving it that's wrong, right? I'm going to get something from God because of my good performance and my good behavior. So, um, I hope that's clear enough. That's what a legalist is. By the way, it's important for, for me to point out a thing. A, a le someone isn't a legalist just because they are devoted themselves to holiness. Someone isn't a legalist just because they have a high value of sanctification or growing in spiritual maturity and separateness from sin, right? That's not what a legalist is. But a legalist is someone who's doing that for the wrong reason. They're doing that so that um, they... Um, can justify themselves. They can say, see, now I deserve what I'm getting. I deserve what's coming my way because I've been slavishly obedient. So, some people want to win their approval by achieving success. If I'm successful, then I'm going to get these good things that are going to come to me. Maybe um, some people want to win their approval by attracting the opposite sex, but there's also religious legalists who want to get right with God through religious activity. They want to get right with God through their moral behavior. And by getting right with God through keeping the law's moral behavior and good performances, you end up on the side of what the Scriptures would call Pharisees. And it's the pride of life that draws us to do this, right? We want credit for what we're, um, for what we're achieving. Now, our children are not immune to this. They begin the journey as a human being, as someone who wants to earn and win and perform their way to reward. Um, my wife uh, is a, she's the lead teacher in our pre-K, and um, she recently told me a story about working with the little ones, and you can see this stuff bubbling up in them already, and um, she is dealing with one of the little ones, and somehow, I think this is right, sweetie, you can correct me later in private when, we're, when I'm done with the story, but... <laughs> 
She doesn't need my permission to do that, by the way. It's, just, it's green light, green light. So she is whispering in one of the pre-K little one's ears, whatever she's whispering to her, and another pre-K girl says, Miss Raquel, what are you whispering to her? What are you telling her? And I think Miss Raquel says something like, it's none of your business. <laughs> and then the little pre-K girl says, are you telling her she's pretty? <laughs> and um, Miss Raquel said that the, she could sense the implication in that little one was, are you going to tell me I'm pretty too? What about me? How about me? And if you have kids who have competed in any way or performed in any way, sometimes you'll hear them come back to you and say, did I do good? And even more, look what I did. Anybody have kids who at times you wanted to just um, take their batteries out because they said, mom, watch, dad, watch, mom, watch, look at me, look at me, watch this. And you're like, I'm going to take your batteries out. Right? I still want you to live in my home because I love you, but I want you to be turned off, really. I don't want you to stop. And uh, uh, so, so here's what we know. We know that that desire is natural. We know that that desire is natural. But I want to point out that that desire can be satisfied when you understand what happens when you join yourself to Jesus by faith, when, when the Holy Spirit regenerates your heart and you are born again, that desire is satisfied forever. That desire to be approved and accepted. And we don't have to say to God the rest of our lives, did you watch me? Was I better than her? Did I do good -der than everyone else? Or isn't it true that I'm so much better than my siblings? Aren't they the worst? Aren't I the best? You don't have to imply that, ask that, wonder that. And we hear kids cry, right? And they say things like, it's not fair. It's not fair. They didn't get what they think they deserved. Someone else is getting more than they think they deserve. And that starts right away. It's not fair. This is not even. I'm performing better, and I'm not getting what they're getting. They're performing worse, and they're getting something I want. And it happens in our home. And then, of course, we know that there is, um, every family seems to think there's a golden child, and the golden child sibling, and they echo the attitude of the older brother in Luke 15, and they say kind of like, they think in these terms, all these years I've never disobeyed, all these years I've outperformed, all these years, and what do I get? Not what they're getting. Not the approval, not the acceptance, not the honor, not the um, open public compliments. And we think, look what they've done, and what do they get? They get everything. You love him more, you accept him and her and not me. You approve their behavior, but not my behavior. And these things the older brother says might be something a family might say to each other. The things that the older brother says might be some things that families say to one another. Look at all that I've done for you. I've slavishly sacrificed for you. I've done everything you've asked of me, but you've never given me what I deserve. Your repayment, you've never repaid me one time. If you're a parent, you might say you've never obeyed me. I've done slavishly and sacrificed for you, and you don't obey me still. I don't get your acceptance, and I've tried to do everything I can. So the main family problem here, the main family problem is that this son is working at home as a slave and not a son. The main problem here is that the son sees himself as a working slave, not a beloved son, but not the father. The father sees it differently. I'm going to show you what the father says. Are you with me on what the elder brother says, all this nastiness, right? Well, maybe justifiably, he's upset, he's angry, right? We understand why. Look what the father says. His father says to him, look, dear son, this is a term of affection here. Look, my dear son, you're dear to me. And you have always stayed by me. We have been together on all this. 
Not once have you and I been separated. We've always been together, you with me and me with you. And everything that I own has always been yours. Why? Because you're my son. Because you belong to me. After learning some of this in my own home, I remember starting to say to my young children when they were very young, I don't say it to them enough now, but I used to say to them when they were very young, you know, Daddy, Mommy loves you, yes. Do we love you because you're beautiful? No. Do we love you because you got an A on your report card? No. Oh, although it helps. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Does Mommy and Daddy love you because you hit the ball so far on the baseball field or kicked the, kicked the um, scored a goal on the soccer field? No. Why do Mommy and Daddy love you? Because we belong to you. We belong to you. And this is what the Father's saying. He's like, my love is based on the fact that you belong to me. It's not based on your super-duper behavior because of how well you're slavishly obeying me. And the son here is trying to win his father's affection when he doesn't need to. And what is Jesus revealing to us about the love of the heavenly father? What is Jesus saying about the flaw of his um, of this particular elder brother. The Father's love. This is so, I hope, I hope this lands. God, God, may our hearts be soft. May, may the soil be soft to hear this truth. The Father's love for His two boys is rooted in their sonship. Not their good behavior. So, this is important. This is important. If that's true, check this out. So His affection and His approval, and approval is never lost based on their bad behavior. Could I read that again? Just for me, not for you, because you got it, but I'm going to read it again. The father's love for his two boys is rooted in their sonship, not their good behavior. So that means something important for those of us who believe in gospel transformation. For those of us who believe in that the gospel transforms our heart, which leads to transformation in the home, it also means that his affection and approval can't be lost based on bad behavior or rebellious behavior, disobedient behavior. The gospel is the good news that God's love for us is expressed in Jesus' self-sacrifice. It's not expressed to us or based on or rooted in our behavior, or it's not lost in our rebellious behavior. So, I'll make the, trans the translation again. God's love for us is expressed in Jesus. God's love for us is expressed in Jesus' self-sacrifice. And it's based on the fact that He created us, we bear His image, the essence of who He is is love, and He created that whom He loves and expresses that love in Jesus. He isn't expressing His love to us ever because we're having a, such a good week, because we're doing such a good job being, I mean, a really, really good uptick in being a stellar Christian for a little bit. God doesn't love us more because we behave well for Him and doesn't love us less because we don't behave well for Him or we rebel. This is, this is life-changing gospel transformation if we can uh, translate that in into our own life. So, God first loved us, right? We know that God first loved us. We didn't love Him and then He's like, all right, they're doing a nice job. Send them some love. God first loved us only because we belong to Him, not because we behave for Him. So this is a warning for families. So there's, here, here's a gospel transformation warning, a good theologically sound warning for families. And this is for all Christian families, even solid and sincere families. Here's the warning. Without intending to, we can be in an ongoing way reinforcing legalism in our home. Reinforcing legalism in our relationships with our siblings. And the challenge for a family is that if we're not careful, our family life at home can um, just build on this innate legalism. What do I mean by that? Well, if we're not careful, our family learns that good behavior earns acceptance while bad behavior earns rejection. And the critical question is, how are we influencing the heart of 
our siblings, our children, and our parents? Is it possible that we're training our kids to be legalists? Is it possible that we could be teaching them that changing behavior earns our love, wins our love? And if you change your behavior, you're going to get the acceptance that you want from me. All you got to do is just shape up. And if you don't, what happens? What do we do with them if they don't shape up? Ship out. Thank you for finishing that powerful metaphor. So, um, here's, another, um, here's another one. Another warning. It's possible that we're miscommunicating grace. And what do I mean by that? Well, let me make sure I got this right here. You've got reinforced legalism, right? Secondly, another warning is we might be miscommunicating grace. Well, what do I mean by that? Here's what I mean. If we're not careful, our family avoids any discipline, any accountability, and by all means, never speak the truth, even if it's in love. We avoid that. Why? Because we're trying to be gracious. We're trying to be gracious. Um, so what are we doing then? We're miscommunicating and distorting what grace is. Um, so that's not how grace works with God. Grace takes sin very seriously. In fact, it's so much more seriously than legalism, which thinks we can overcome sin through our own effort, or license, which thinks sin doesn't matter very much. Grace says that sin matters so much that God had to send His own innocent Son to cover the payment for sin. So grace takes sin very serious. It costs blood, and innocent blood, for Jesus to die in our place. And we know that the Lord disciplines us, but He disciplines those whom He loves. Not those He's angry at. Not those who... Um, he doesn't say, well, I can't discipline them because I'm a gracious God. We know that God withholds His punishment by His mercy, but we also know that grace doesn't mean you never have discipline, accountability, and speaking the truth and love at home. That's a distortion and a miscommunication. God accepts us as we are by grace, but He accepts us and He provides what's needed to change. He provides the power for transformation. And over time, He says, I'm going to love you as you are, but I'm going to give you the power to not stay who you are and let you grow and surge and change. And it's the same with families. If He accepts us without our deserving it, then we accept our children and family as they are but with an expectation that they're going to grow and change. There's going to be transformation. But we can still have conversations that are truth and love. We can still have accountability and discipline in our home and still be gracious people and still have a home full of grace, right? So, check this out. Lastly, lastly, the gospel transforms in our homes the way we discipline and the way we disagree. If um, you have kind of like you've been listening here for a while and then you realize, uh-oh, I just kind of uh, wandered off the sh to the shoulder or I've got an, I'm, on, I'm in an off-ramp and I'm rearranging, I'm starting to look at the pre-game coverage of the Super Bowl on my phone. Come on back. Come on back. Okay? Check this out. Check this out. In our homes, there's change. Gospel transforms things. And here's one of the changes. One of the changes is it transforms the way we discipline and disagree. We disagree different, and we discipline different. So, well, um, it doesn't mean grace and transformation doesn't mean no disagreements and no discipline. Instead, it changes the way we do it in our homes. Grace never means that you and I have to see sin and rebellion in our siblings, our parents, or our kids, and then turn our head and then say, well, I want to make sure that we're a gracious family, so I'm going to pretend that's not happening. I'm going to just give them grace. It's not how it works. It's also not how it works with God. Instead, we gospelize our discipline. We gospelize our disagreements. What does that mean? It means it's discipline that adds something. Grace means it's something added. It adds undeserved affection. Our discipline, when we're thinking about disciplining our kids, grace means we add affection, acceptance, and approval that isn't deserved. It's not earned. 
It's not rooted in good behavior. It's not rooted in sharing the same beliefs about the way the world works. It's not rooted in um, being pleased. Instead, it adds undeserved affection, approval, and acceptance. And it also does something else. It absorbs shame. It, 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 it um, adds shame absorbed by Jesus so it doesn't need to use shame in the home. So, And I hope that that's helpful when we're thinking about how we're trying to motivate our kids or try to express ourselves to our siblings or our parents. Shame is gone from the home. Do you know why shame is gone from the home? Not because we don't deserve it, but because it's been absorbed by Jesus. And therefore, no more use of shame to leverage better behavior. We discipline our children without shame. We point to the full forgiveness expressed in the cross. You don't have to feel the shame. In other words, you don't have to feel separated and distant from God alone because Jesus has fully absorbed our shame on the cross and He expressed His love for us. We disagree with our family members without distance. And we can point to um, the affection that God expresses when He disagrees with us. Aren't you glad, I hope this is rhetorical, but aren't you glad that when God disagrees with us, He doesn't withdraw from us? Aren't you glad? He's like, man, you better come to your senses. I'm going to be way, way over here. You better get your act together. And when you do, come looking for me and hopefully you'll find me, but you may have blown it. When we need discipline, I mentioned this last Sunday, right in close. And he's saying to you, I'm your loving father. I am right here when you come to your senses. I'm coming after you. I am chasing you. I'm leaving the home, and I'm coming after you. Well, what about all of the shame I brought you, and what about all of the rebellion? What about the wild living? What about I am going to celebrate that you were lost, and now you're found. You were dead, and now you're alive, and we're going to party around here in this house. What are we learning? By grace, that's how God gives it to us. So, what do we do now? A couple things real quick. I hope this helps. We, in our homes, we root out grudges. No more grudges. Why? Because I'm free from grudges. I'm free from them. And if I'm holding on to them, I can go, wait, what? Just, I can let them go? You can let them go. When the discipline's over, when the disagreement has been communicated, the truth and love, it can be forgotten. No more grudges because I don't need that kind of energy and that kind of power and, and, and I don't thrive anymore on that kind of hardship and hurt. Now I am amped up by the grace of God. No lingering resentment. By the way, when that person sinned, Check this out. When your sibling sinned in your home, when your parents sinned in your home, when you sinned in your home, do you know that primarily they, they, they didn't sin against you? When they sassed you back at three years old, you know what it feels like? Oh, you're sinning against me, knucklehead. But what happened? They sinned against God. And so, it's almost like I don't even have a right to hold a grudge if they're not sinning against me. Why am I holding a grudge? And the Scripture says, by the way, Proverbs says, you take up another person's offense, it's like holding a dog by the ears. It's going to bite you right in the face. So we let go of the grudges. Since God doesn't harbor a grudge, what right do we have to do it in our families, in our homes? We express the same grace that we receive. And also, think of this equation. I receive infinite amount of grace from God. His kindness leads to my repentance. He gives me all the things I don't deserve, primarily Himself. And then someone wants forgiveness from me, and I'm like, nah, sorry, you're going to have to win it back. You're going to have to earn it back. See what I mean? So we are, we are free to let go of the grudges. Uh, also, we work to root out rejection. Root out rejection. Always show acceptance to your child or family member when you've disciplined and disagree with them. Always show acceptance to them when you've disciplined and disagreed with them. So, 
this is, this is, this is huge. And, 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 and honestly, I remember when God started to work this into my own heart, I remember thinking, this is one of the most valuable things I've ever learned in being a parent and being a part of a home. And that is this, that in a gospel home, there should be no hint of isolation or when my kids disobey and rebel and they need discipline, I don't follow that up with the silent treatment. I don't follow that up with the cold shoulder for my siblings. My siblings have crossed me or I've crossed them or my parents and so on. There's no cold shoulder. There's no silent treatment for the people who have disobeyed me or disagreed with me or been disagreeable. Discipline plus affection is how it works. Discipline plus affection. It's discipline with acceptance. Discipline with approval. Discipline with um, affection. In other words, I am not mad at my children in such a way as when they have crossed me that one of the things that it costs them is my affection. Does that make sense? In other words, I am not so amped up and so angry. Now I'm selfishly lashing out and I'm saying, not only did you lose the privilege, let's say it's a device. That device, it's long gone. I'm going to give it to Tucker Peebles and he's going to make it disappear. (laughs) It's going to be gone forever. I'm going to make that disappear and I want to remind you of something. You also, because of your rebellion and your bad behavior, you don't get me. I'm out. I cut it off emotionally. Does that make sense? Here's what we say. This, is, this, this, is, this helped me so much. Here's what we say. If you want the love of your father and your mother, if you want the love of your brother and sister, if you want the love of your parent, you better behave. You better behave. And when you're not behaving, I want you to feel that isolation. I want you to feel that cold shoulder. I want you to feel that aloneness. And here's what, I, here's what I think is happening. Here's what I think is happening. We are teaching and training inadvertently. Our siblings, our parents, and our children, inadvertently, we're teaching them to be legalists. If you behave, the Father in heaven approves you. He accepts you. He loves you. But if you're naughty and you've slipped up, you haven't come to your senses yet, you've you got wild living or you're disobedient, mildly disobedient, partially obedient, you're just not living up to snuff, Well, that isolation you feel, that coldness you feel, that cold shoulder you feel from God in heaven is because you got to get your act together. I don't believe that's how God functions. You know what God says? I'm with you all along. I've been with you all along. In fact, while you were doing that, you also had me, but you were so enthralled with all that, you didn't even remember, I already have my father. What do I need all this stuff for? What am I doing? And so, I want to inspire you. I hope I inspire you here. And I hope the Holy Spirit's at work and you're showing. You can let go of emotionally punishing your family, your parents, your siblings, and your kids with an emotional abandonment and rejection. That means we get to move into our teenager, our brother, our parent, and our children. We get to move into them and we get to express approval and affection while we're saying, but there are consequences. But while you're facing the consequences, I'm going to be right here with you. We're going to hit these consequences. You see what I'm saying? It's like it's not saying, I'm with you, I love you, and we're a gracious family, so no consequences. It is instead, there has to be consequences because I discipline who I love, just like God does, but I'm going to be with you through those consequences. And two, two people who are married together, these spouses are mad at each other and they have a disagreement that they're trying to work out. They can work out that disagreement and they can really do so with affection for one another while they're sorting through it. Why? Because someone's disagreeable behavior doesn't cause me to withdraw my emotional connection or my emotional love. So, um, that's more than I was going to say on that. But um, So, we are careful not to humiliate our family members and children because it generates shame that Jesus has already absorbed. And as far as possible, we're praising them in public, and we are disciplining and disagreeing with them all in private. Um, it is so important for us to sift our own hearts. 
and to recognize that the reason that we're isolating and the reason we're doing that is because of the selfish anger in our own hearts. Oftentimes, Ted, uh, Paul Tripp writes about, uh, Ted and Paul Tripp, they write about um, shepherding a child's heart, and they would say the reason that we are angrily lashing out and then isolating and rejecting is because our children or our parents or our siblings have disrupted our idols. <laughs> and that makes us angry. Um, so, last one, really quick, we get to root out bribery. We get to root out bribery. What does that mean? Teach children to do the right thing because the right thing to do is to submit to authority. That's the right thing to do. And that's why we're doing what we're doing. We're not going to do it because you're going to get this really cool trinket or Happy Meal, which, to be honest, worked in my house at my home when I was a kid. My parents would spend 89 cents and get me a Happy Meal. So, Bribery says, uh, bribery, by the way, could be just another, another word for legalism. Um, and some of you now are like, uh-oh, if I can't bribe, I don't know what I'm going to do. I am like a, I'm a sailor without an oar. I am in trouble. Ship without a rudder. Um, bribery starts to build this legalism. It motivates children to perform for a reward. And by the way, what does that mean? No reward... I ain't behaving. I'm not obeying. There's no re- What's the reward? And the reward, by the way, the reward is you're learning to submit to authority, and in God's economy, the reward is you have everything you need in the Father. You're, doing it, you're pleasing your uh, Father in heaven, and you're pleasing your parents, and God forbid we take the reward away, and there's no more motivation to care at all what the authority is asking or demanding. By the way, it also makes submission to authority negotiable, right? Anyone else feel like it's an odd position to be in when you're trying to negotiate with an eight-year-old and you're kind of like, how did we get to this point? How do we get to this point where I am the adult put in place by the creator of the universe to bring authority to this child and now this child is standing next to me negotiating what's going to go down? Now, I recognize, hear me out, I recognize that these circumstances in families are not easy. I recognize that there are some really unique circumstances that make just, hey, I'm your authority, and all of a sudden the kid's like, of course you are, here I go, I'm going to obey forever. I recognize there are some challenges there. But theologically, theologically, our, um, we, we're able to root out bribery because um, we're not offering rewards for good behavior. Um, we're offering you are pleasing God and you are pleasing your parents and pleasing authority. Um, My wife used to say, um, the reason that you have to do this is because God gave you parents. Here we are. You are in our home and we have a responsibility to lead you. You have a responsibility to submit to you. And then she used to use this line that, that I really like. She said, and you get to help bring peace to our home. That's what you get to do. You participate, you have a role in bringing peace to our home. And when you're acting all like that, like your father, no peace in the house, okay? So FYI. Um, so we know that we make sure our kids know that we discipline because we love them. Um, we're not negotiating with them, and they are not negotiating with us so that they feel like they have to negotiate um, themselves into being lovable with us. Um, Last one, root out comparing. Legalists criticize other people because it makes them feel better about themselves and families. um, Is my family hearing me put other people down? Is my family hearing me uh, look down on other people um, with self-righteous pride or condemn them? Is my family hearing me Look at the world as if it's us versus them, insider, outsider, right and wrong. Then um, do my family hear me comparing sibling to sibling, child to, uh, child, to child, uh, parents to someone else's parents? And of course, we know that's where it starts. So there's a new heart 
that brings us a new home, and God can do it Himself. Let's pray together. Father, thank You today for um, stirring us up to believe the gospel, all aspects of it, God, and the way that it transforms our heart, home, and neighborhood. And thank You too, God, that the gospel has the power to transform our relationships right in our home with a new power, a new power that's fueled by grace. And God, I'm mindful here today that there are families that are suffering, parents who are struggling with parenting, marriages that are sensing a little or even a lot of isolation, rejection, and distance, that somehow getting hurt brought separation and distance. And Father, we know that you've given us the power to reconcile that. We know that through grace, you can um, bring new power to be forgiven, to offer forgiveness. And if nothing else, God, we know that you can start us on the path towards reconciliation. And that that season of time will be um, kind of prodded along by the work of your Spirit. And we pray that whether it's raising young children or being reconciled to siblings or parents, we pray that it would be something that you're doing with your spirit in the power of your grace. God, in our family, in our homes, may we grow to radiate and reflect the joy of living free from legalism. You can do it. Church family, before you look up at me and before we're done praying, would you, would you do something for me? I'm not sure I do this often enough. Would you slip your hand up if you, if you would just want to say, Pastor, would you pray for me? Pray for me. Pray for my family. Pray for us. Pray for us. In this particular area, God, pray for, uh, um, Pastor, pray for us. Approach God and pray for us. Anybody else? Some area that you just say, God, I, I mean, would you intervene, please? Would you bring restoration, reconciliation? Would you bring grace? God, our church family needs you, relies on you, depends on you. It's not our willpower. It's your Holy Spirit power that transforms. And may you find us willing to live in the joy of being free from legalism in our homes. We thank you for it, trust you with it. In Jesus' strong name. Amen. Would you stand, church family? We're going to sing and celebrate these truths together.